Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Line, the sports podcast from PR Week. Welcome to The Line. It's Richard Gillis here and Danny Rogers. This week's guest is Jermaine Janus, the footballer turned pundit. Danny, interesting time. Yes, I find Jermaine fascinating. He's very much the modern footballer, the modern ex-footballer. He's still only 34, only recently retired from the game. He's getting involved in documentaries and finding a, almost a social purpose for himself, which I find fascinating. Yeah, we start with the 2006 World Cup, what it was like inside the England camp. You live in, a, in the hotel, get on the coach, go to training, back on the coach, back to the hotel, and that's how you live your life. And now he's on the outside. He's going to Russia this summer as a pundit and commentator for BBC. And we talked to Jermaine about whether we're ready for a Premier League footballer to come out as gay and the effect that would have on fans. You know, I, you know, I do hope you know, that there will be a day that you know, we will see you know, a gay footballer playing in the Premier League. So there's lots there and we hope you enjoy it. So Jermaine, thanks for doing this. You're a busy man trying to pin you down. <laughs> Where are you this afternoon? Um, I'm on my way to Stamford Bridge this, this evening, actually, yeah, for the, um, the FA Cup replay between Chelsea and Norwich. So, yeah, very busy. Going to be a cold night. How many, how many sort of uh, nights are you doing football? It, well, I, most of the, uh, the season, obviously, so from early, what, late August to the end of May, I'll be non-stop, to be honest with you. Um, I was quite fortunate this year to manage to get a little break at Christmas. But, yeah, every weekend, midweek, you know, talking football uh, whether it's match of the day or you know on BT Sport whatever it is I'll be I'll be out there most weekends on people's televisions whether they like it or not you've got the World Cup coming up this summer yeah I mean that's a really interesting um, situation the World Cup Um, a lot of kind of apprehension about it being in Russia a lot of eyes will be on them in, in terms of how they handle the tournament and recently got invited actually to the um to the Russian embassy for them to kind of give us a little bit of a talk on how they feel that that's going to be 
how they're going to handle it, the, 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 where the stadiums are going to be and the areas around it and what we can enjoy and so on and so forth. And I mean, it was okay. It wasn't like everyone came out of there going, oh, yeah, I can't wait to be there. No, it was, <laughs> it was all right. So, um, yeah, look, the World Cup is it's the pinnacle. You know, I was fortunate to go to one as a player. Um, and when you go to it as a player, you're very just kind of submerged in within it. You are, very, you know, you, you live in, a, in the hotel, get on the coach, go to training, back on the coach, back to the hotel. And that's how you live your life. And you live it almost through a lens of watching people enjoy themselves through a coach window or kind of, you know, whether, you know, being in the stadium and seeing everybody enjoying themselves while you're trying to focus your energy in the right places for, you know, for probably the most pressurised moment of any England footballer's career. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be nice to go to one and just be able to relax, see the sights, enjoy it, and hopefully we'll get a better England performance. Fingers crossed. It's one of those that, that actually the one of the stories around every World Cup is, you know, England are either too remote, mm. they're far away, or they're not remote enough or there is you know there is always some story running into it in terms of around the camp isn't there that's always become this yeah theme. i thought it settled down a little bit at the european championships you know i think that whole um situation with all the family kind of turning up wives kids moms and dads being very close to the to the team uh, well it stemmed from my uh, tournament i went to in germany in baden baden and it had its positives, don't get me wrong, you know, when you're away for long periods and you get to see your family, it does kind of give you that little lease of life. Um, but, I, you know, I suppose the way that the kind of British press highlighted every single move of everybody's movements in terms of, like, your parents, your sisters, your brothers. That was the famous Wags World Cup, It was, it? yeah. And it, it kind of flipped it, on it, flipped it on its head what the FA thought would be a good thing for the team and be a positive to kind of make people feel like they're almost at home and keep people close, which I thought at the time was a decent idea. It turned out to be a bit of a nightmare, really, and created this whole wag culture mm. and um, everything that went along with that. So they've kind of stepped back from that, the FA, and I feel it's probably the right move uh, to make. You know, it's what, six to eight weeks of your of your life as a footballer. You know, it's... It's, it's nothing in terms of the reward that you can get at the end of it. So you just get your head down and focus. I guess the other thing about World Cups is you've got a lot of journalists camped in a country mm. looking for a lot of stories, expecting a well, you know a big demand for for stories. Listen, it, it, you know, I know for a fact in the Germany one, they was camped not only kind of very close; they were actually in the hotel of our families, and um, you know there were stories of people walking around with cameras in in kind of like in bags with microphones kind of plotting them next to people, listening to conversations and get trying to get close to people, see how people were feeling. So you kind of, you're misleading a lot of um, pe people's trust. And it's not just people, it's family, it's mums yeah. and dads and brothers and sisters. So, you know, a lot of players never forgot that. Um, I'm totally honest with you. I know the stories that were leaked from that and the problems that it actually caused the team over everything, you know, our own press to kind of go, go, go down that road. It was, um, it, it was not, very classy I thought at the time um, but at the same time you know the, the press are there to tell a story and they would probably say well you know your family wasn't acting you know in the way that we thought was appropriate so we had a story to tell so that's just the way it works um, you know didn't quite go for us at the tournament but we move on and do you, do you think that the me the British media or English media should be patriotic in terms of supporting the team it's a good question um Patriotic. Yeah, look, I, I think 
the British media, they they will look at it in terms of the story, I think, before their love for England football team. And I think that falls below the level of patriotism um, for me personally. And I'm not sure I can have a go at them for that. It's their job. You know, they're doing what they've gone to university for. What they've been trained to do is to get stories. I do think there is a line. Um, I am kind of in a similar world myself now where, you you know, you, you want to gain trust. Where, you know, if I want people on my shows, my radio shows and so on, then, and I want them to speak expressively, I would almost stop them if I felt that they was going to a place that was going to get them in trouble on the basis that I will maintain my relationship with the club and the player in the long term um, rather than just for that one moment of, oh, Jermaine's show is going to get um, um, two f- to five million clicks over some sound soundbite from a Premier League footballer. I've, you know, I think when, you, when you've lived on both sides of the fence, you kind of get a real sense of what's right and wrong, really. And um, yeah, I just felt that, you know, at times, you know, some of the British press, when it comes to the big major tournaments, have stepped on the wrong side of that. Okay, let's let's talk then about um, match of the day. I'm mm. uh, I'd love to know what goes on behind the scenes. <laughs> Just so, so you know, if you're on on a Saturday night, what's your day look like? So yeah, it starts a lot earlier than people think. Really, I mean, you've got the early kickoff for starters. So the minute games go live, we'll be in a room very similar to the one we're in now. Televisions all over the wall, and we uh, will watch the early kickoff. Um, then you'll obviously watch all of the three o'clock, uh, three o'clock kickoffs as well, and then the late kickoff. Now, whilst the games are on, I'll be basically sat with uh, a pad and paper. Um, there'll be kind of like a time code at the top of the of all these televisions, and um, any incidents or any kind of any patterns that I see developing throughout the game. So I might say, right, something's developing down that left-hand side that I need to keep an eye on. And there's there's two kind of loggers that will log all the information, whether I kind of just shout it to them or whether I write it down. So could be this weekend um, when a game's going on and I'll be going, right, something that left-hand side's happening. What time is it? Right, it's 10 past three. Bosh, right, another cross. Quarter past three, another cross. And I can all of a sudden see that pattern, st- pattern starting to emerge. And I'll be looking at a couple of games doing that. Alan might be looking at a couple of games and Gary will always watch Leicester, no matter what <laughs> happens. So, um, you know, we, we kind of get some good insight there. Um, and then obviously as the games finish and you get to that, uh, you get to that time we need to go and go and analyse. We'll have a little bit of a debrief between ourselves, almost discussions um, that can turn into, not heated discussions, but it, they provoke kind of, a difference of opinion you know I think it's always good that you don't just disagree for the sake of it if you've got a different opinion or a different approach it, it creates a definite um, a better angle because essentially once I go into the uh, the side of putting it down into a presentation I've only got like a minute usually you know I can have I could have wrote down as many clips as you want created an amazing piece and then I'll say to you know the director right how long have I got and he'll go well you've got a minute and I go I've got five minutes worth of stuff and he'll go you better get rid of some stuff then (laughs) that's essentially how the conversation goes and then we'll sit there and you have to kind of be a bit ruthless and go right get rid of that clip it's not good enough get rid of that whittle it down to what I would class as a um, something that's really punchy you know a real strong point Um, and then yeah you obviously you, you kind of prepare your your points. So when I say be punchy and kind of prepare your points, I like to you know at least have three key points really within you know, every bit of analysis that I do. Um, the bigger pieces anyway, where 
people can go, oh, actually, yeah, you know, or disagree completely. But whatever, as long as it's something that I feel is strong, um, then that's what we'll do. But just to kind of go back to the process, you know, yeah. that you're talking about, I'll be in the room with the, the, the technicians and I will be saying to them, right, highlight that. I want a couple of lines put there, circle him uh, during that clip. Even to, to the finer details of, I need you to freeze that clip for five seconds because I need five seconds to put across the point that I need to hit and then you can run it on from there. And, we, you know, we'll time it and you can rehearse it. But as soon as those cameras go live, the game changes a little bit and obviously you hear the music, you can get a bit nervous, but the more you do it, um, the more you get used to it, I suppose. Do you feel the need to be controversial? Because we talked a bit about stories yeah. um, and a lot of the clips from Match of the Day are then used on the BBC website afterwards as mm. kind of stories. Do you feel the pressure to say something? No, sli- I don't. I don't personally. Um, I, I tend to kind of go against that, if anything. Um, I, I always like to speak from the players' perspective, not the fans' perspective. Um, and I, I've always felt that was really important because when I was playing, um, I, I I never felt that voice really kind of, like a voice was coming from the changing room, really. I always felt that it was, you know, the fans don't think that. You can't do that for the fans. That's a disgrace for, the, you, know, the, you know, they pay their money. And I get that argument, I really do. But, you know, the, I felt that, people forgot just how difficult the game was to play at times and everything that goes along with the game, the kind of, um, not just the pressures of playing football, that's, that's, that's a given, but just, just the, the, the details that people, you know, the, the fact that you're actually playing against a very, very good side sometimes and things that are just not possible to do, you know, which people expect um, to be easy. But any game you watch, you can dissect and tear people apart. But that's the, that's the easy thing to do as far as I'm concerned. I think there are, you know, the, I like to be able to give pieces of analysis, especially when they're critical to, you know, even if I'm digging out one particular person, I want to be able to kind of bump into that person on the Monday and him say to me, you know what, actually, y- y- your point was, was fair. It wasn't, um, it, it was well thought out and it wasn't just you having a go at me. It was, you know, it was something that I've had a look at now and I think, you know what, you're right type discussion rather than him ignoring me uh, and my training ground for that actually was perfect because when I first started doing match of the day I was still at QPR and they were going through an absolute nightmare at the time I wasn't on the books anymore but I was doing my rehab there so on a Saturday night I'd be doing match of the day they got beat most Saturday nights and put in terrible performances so Harry Redknapp Harry yeah. Redknapp would be there uh, and obviously the, the team that I was playing for the season before so friends and so on and I would have to kind of dissect their performance, you know, and be, and be a little bit ruthless at times when it, when I felt like the attitude, you know, wasn't as good as, it, good as it should be. And then on the Monday, I'd be walking through the dressing room door and looking people in the eye and talking to them about it. And they, you know, at that point then, I realised that that was the right route to take because, you know, I gained more respect from my own friends in the dressing room that they would kind of surround me in a circle as I kind of sat down on a Monday and be like, you know, th- their first question would be what yours is. You know, what's match of the day like? You know, yeah. what, you know what, what actually goes on? But then at the same time, we'd have a discussion about what I actually saw and they'd say, you know what, well, that's, that's definitely what we need to, to work on. So I suppose the, the other bit to it is that you've now got some facts to work. You know, it used to be that pundits, it's, it was very much opinion-led and mm. now you are swamped with sort of data points and, yeah. and analytics tools that helps you a bit in that sense i guess um 
Yes and no, I would say, because uh, I don't know if this is going to sound the wrong way, but I, I feel that fans these days are far more well-informed uh, and have a far greater knowledge of the game inside and out than maybe they used to. Um, so the stats, the facts, the figures and, uh, and so on are great, but also fans are getting these figures. They go into watch their, their home team on a regular basis and you have a responsibility, really, to kind of live up to what they deserve in terms of the the level of quality that you're bringing across. Because you you can't you can't blag it. You, you can't blag that kind of real hard fan who goes to the game every single week and and can almost predict a down the downfall of a side just based on what he's watching. You know the attitude of the team, the way that the, t- the team's chopping and changing, the lack of goals they're scoring. Fans have all this data now, you know, and we have it, and it's a great tool to have and to use. Um, I'm not a massive fan of stats, to be honest with you. I never really have been. I think there is a place for it when I'm trying to kind of to, to really highlight a point, but they, I, I prefer to see patterns in games or patterns in in the. Uh, the way a player is playing. If he's getting a lot of chances, for example, and they're not hitting the back of the net, you know, the stats will tell you well he's having one. He's having a nightmare because the ball's not hitting the back of the net. But what you know, the, the the fan who's going to the game every week will tell you is he's getting into the right places. It's going to come. It's going to turn. And inevitably, you know, for the good players, it does. So you have to be careful where you use them. But like I said, I think you have to give fans a lot of more kind of uh, credit these days for for their own knowledge. I guess what you add is the psychology. So you. Having been a top four footballer, you know what's going through the minds of that player yeah. who's having a nightmare. So uh, a yeah. bit why they, they're facing that challenge. Precisely. And just even just down to the technical side of it, you know, a lot of people, oh, that was an easy chance, should have stuck it away. And, you know, I've been there kind of a cross coming in on my left side, which is my weak side, bouncing just before me, expecting me to volley it in the back of the net, goes over the bar and you kind of go, yeah, probably should have, should have stuck it away. But it's not as easy as you, <laughs> as you think it is. Um, even as a professional footballer. But yeah, that is the beauty. And I suppose that is my job. My job is exactly that, to kind of give fans an insight, give yourselves an insight as to what I am feeling or what they are feeling at any particular moment during the game. Let's, so the perception then of footballers, because do we, do we get it right? In terms of do, when f- footballers who you know... Um, because you've been one and you spend a lot of time with them. When you see them in the media, then the way in which they're perceived, and there's a lot of money in football is always the cliche, but do they get a fair run, do you think? Or are we misrepresenting them? Uh, what, 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 what would you say is the perception of, a, of the average footballer now? What would you say? Uh, obsessed with money, obsessed with girls, obsessed with computer gaming. Mm. Now, I mean, just to touch on the money type side of of things, money is it's part of the business, obviously. And you know, we're talking about the Premier League as a product as one of one of the fastest growing products. I'm I'm guessing in in the world right now, and and the clamour for it in terms of you know other companies like you know rumours of Amazon wanting to get involved, Google. Apple, you know, everybody wants a piece of the Premier League right now and they're prepared to pay billions for it. Now, there's a reason why they want to pay billions for it and it's because it's one of the best leagues in the world and what makes it one of the best leagues in the world is the players. 
So the money's come into the game, and you know it's, it's great for the players, and they need to be managed and to be to be looked after. And don't and granted, some make mistakes, but it's just part of it. And it's like any other world where a business is thriving. These are these are players that have essentially, I would say, eighty percent of the league are from very low working backgrounds. I would say. Um, I was one of them, grew up on a council estate and all of a sudden, you know, I was bought for five million pounds, which made me the third most expensive teenager in the world at the time. You get a load of money in your back pocket and you lose your mind. That's the first thing you do. You go, what is all, you know, you can't get enough of it. It just keeps it in your account and you're like, I I don't even know what to do with this. It is that bad. Um, Which is why I said, you know, you need a level of, um, you need people around you to try and look after you. But they, uh, you, you you can't even trust them at times. You know the people that you put trust in. You can't even trust them at times. So the perception side of things with footballers, it's difficult. But at the same time, I I, I think that you, you're you're gaining more access to footballers and footballers' lives in one way with the social media side yeah. of things. But on the other side to that, kind of the person they are. Like you, if you speak when I speak to kind of old school fans, they're their their love that they ha- had for their players it all came from being able to go down the local pub and see them and talk to them about the game that weekend spend time with them um and their access wasn't kind of as bad as it is now you have to protect the players now unfortunately you just you, you just do you know you only have to read a few comments on instagram just to, uh, on twitter sorry to understand you know some of the stuff that players are having, uh, you know, having to go through. So unfortunately that divide has been created and I think it has been created by money. I really do. Um, but it is there. Now, I, I, I do think, you know, in 2018, right now, the representation of footballers in England, I think it's a good representation. I think they're far more professional than they used to be. Uh, they're, they're far more kind of well-educated on how to handle themselves, the pitfalls, what to kind of look out for. You talk about, obviously, the, 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 the women and the money. Gambling's another issue. I, th- I find that players are now starting to create their own little mini-businesses, you know, within themselves, their own little brands, which, like anybody knows in any business, if you've got that brand, you don't want to destroy it because it's who you are. It's what represent, you know, it's what you represent. So anything like, I don't know, drink driving, rape charges, you know, all of these things that have been associated with a lot of sports people, I'm not just going to say footballers, yeah. in the past, um, is is what destroys your brand completely. So I think that they're far more savvy now and understanding of what of their responsibility. And you'll find now players, you know, head, uh, leading charities, leading fashion brands, getting paid fortunes by uh, companies like Adidas and Nike and Puma and, um, uh, you know, even people like um, Beats with the headphones. You know, there are, there, there's so much money to be made now outside of football for the person you are that you know, I, I feel that when I look at the game that you've got a far more well-behaved um, bunch of people. Is, is that because they are more responsible as individuals or is that that they're being managed better by groups of people? I think I, my experience, when I was coming out of the game, I came across a different type of player. Um, and they were more responsible and they wasn't led by parties and alcohol and going out and having a laugh and it was very more 
focused and you know driven by their careers and I think along with that yes they get managed probably a little bit better I wouldn't say loads better you know uh, there are a lot of agents out there that are still the exact same agents that are out there when I was when I was playing and I know a lot of them very well um, but yeah they look they look after the diet they look after they, they work very hard and like I said they, they are more driven the the perception thing is, is still niggling away in my mind to be honest with you in terms of like, what people's thoughts are and the only reason why I think people do think kind of bad Hey Dave Yeah Randy Since we founded Bombas we've always said our socks underwear and t-shirts are super soft Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cosy Wait what? I got it Bombas Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. Things of footballers is just that it is that distance that I do feel is created. I don't think people look at footballers as human beings anymore. They look at them as like Hollywood stars. Yeah, I think. I mean, it's. I guess it's a. Uh, it's interesting the reaction to one matters. Um, campaign and mm. his you know the stand that he has taken because yeah. that was received very warmly and it seemed to be that people thought oh well I didn't think footballers were like that <laughs> yeah you know and that's I'm just playing devil's advocate but that was seemed to be part one of the reactions and you know I like everyone in the room knows of of lots of community work that Premier League teams do, for example, that, mm. that won't make the headlines and, and won't sort of create a news story. Mm. Um, that is the sad thing, though. That's the really sad thing. Because yeah. what, what we're essentially saying, then, is anybody that does anything good, take a picture of it, shout about it, uh, otherwise it didn't count. That's basically what we're saying. And what One Matter has done is absolutely brilliant, uh, you know, in terms of the campaign that he's done. And I don't think in any... I, I mean... I don't know one matter very well, but I can give you quite a very good insight as to the person he is just based on watching him over the years, being around him, playing against him. And he's not um, he's not show-offy. He's not a screamer and shouter when it comes to everything that he's done. This has come out because it's a good campaign. You know, and he wanted to, he wanted to get more people involved. Um, and, you know, rightly so. And I think a lot of some players did jump on board, some didn't. We had similar things when I was playing. There were a lot of things that so many footballers do that people don't hear about there's a lot of things that the Premier League does they get a lot of criticism the Premier League itself gets absolutely torn apart because they don't scream and shout enough about exactly how many pitches uh, they've they've put in London Nottingham here there and everywhere how many schools they support how many players they've sent out you know everyone always thinks you can do more and yes you can granted but if what we're saying is you've got to shout about it and take a picture and put it on your Instagram, then I think we're, we're going to a bit of a sad place, really, aren't we? 
I hope you're enjoying this episode of The Line. If you'd like to be involved in future episodes, either as a guest or as a sponsor, then drop me a line on danny.rogers at haymarket.com or look on the PR Week website for details. Can I ask uh, quite a controversial question? Can I ask when you think it will be that a Premier League footballer can come out as gay? Um... Will it happen? You know, I've spoke about this a lot. I spoke about this a lot. Um, and unfortunately, you know, our, our game, as I say unfortunately, it's the, it's the part about the game. There's a side to the game that I love, which is this, this territorial kind of element. And that territorial element, it creates hate. And we see it on the terraces every single weekend, the chance, um, the, you know, the, the hatred towards one specific player for... I don't know, leaving a rival's side, you know, and a lot of that is part of the game and the fans, they try to destroy, they try to eliminate that player because they think he's a a threat. My worry, you know, for, you know, this player that decides to come out as gay, um, and I really do hope that one day it does happen because I, I, is our game ready for it? I think within the game it is. I think, you know, there there are players... um, that are within dressing rooms that are, you know, are completely fine with it. I think everybody's fine with it. I know I've spoke to Robbie Keane at depth about Robbie Rogers when he was yeah. at um, LA Galaxy and how, you know, how that was received. And he was like, Jay, it's, it's fine. You know, I don't know. And I was, that's exactly how I thought it would happen. Lads have a laugh. You have a joke. There's a bit of banter, as you can always imagine. Never over- overstep the mark. But the problem comes when I, for me, when he steps over that white line, and yes, he's part of a team and he's kind of on his own and the chants start to come in and so on and so forth. And I suppose the only thing that I can slightly relate it to is you know, when black players came into the game mm. and what they had to go through to get the game to where it is now. The bananas, the segregation, the, um, the abuse families you know yeah. it, it was deep obviously yeah. you know my dad gave me and my mum gave me a very good insight as to kind of what that life was like um, and that's what it's going to take it's going to take a very brave footballer and it's a shame that the yeah. you know the players you know, don't want to criticise people like Thomas Hitzelberger because you know he's, he's came out eventually and it's all about timing and they get to decide it's their you know it's their choice when yeah, they yeah. decide what they you know it's happened they in want rugby to of course you know it has yeah, yeah. I think that it's interesting because obviously you know Cyril Regis died this week and that looking back at some of the coverage and some of the the stories around him and I really I mean I used to you know he was a fantastic player real hero Mm. Um, and yet it does take you know the the abuse he took was extraordinary to our light to you know in our eyes here we're sitting in 2017 and one of the things I think it relates to perhaps is that football is brilliant at sort of normalizing things so to a mass mainstream audience and that mm. can be you know tech stuff or it can be social issues and actually i would argue that first cohort the viv andersons and bob hazels and Cyril regis that laurie cunningham's mm. they took enormous amounts of abuse oh, yeah. and yet they made it okay for people to come beyond that it made it gotcha. you know it made it sort of now it would Again, we got to enjoy the game. Yeah, you know, players like you know, obviously Laurie Cunningham's and Sir Regis's and so on, and Viv Anderson's. John Barnes was my hero. Yeah, my you know he was he was like God in my house. John Barnes. Um, 
you know, I don't want to say they didn't get to enjoy the game, but the, st the stuff that came with it, I can only imagine. You know, I mean, I played in one particular game for England um, against Spain in the Bernabeu uh, years ago. And we had Sean Mike Phillips and Emil Heskey playing, myself, and I've never heard anything like yeah, it. I remember that game. I mean, it was, it was, you know, direct monkey chants as soon as they got the ball. When I had, I remember getting home, because I spoke to the press after the game, um, and I remember opening my front door to go to train the next day, and I just had cameras everywhere. <laughs> I rang Newcastle, the club, they went, shut your door and we'll come and get you. And I was like, all right. And then, um, you know, we dealt with it accordingly. But just that was a, a, a minute kind of... Uh, taste I suppose of what they went through as players so you know for you know, I, I think for players within the game they're ready they are they're, they're, they are they're ready to accept I suppose is what the, you know if that's what you're you're asking the the bravery of the player whoever that may be now you know is it's on them and whether you know they feel the time is right to to take that step forward are there players who are known to be gay and their their colleagues know that they are gay and yet they know that it's not right none that i know of none that i know of and i know full well that if there were the the, the level of encouragement that they would be getting from from their players uh, from their team being in a team that I mean it's literally like being in a family you spend so much time with each other and you go through everything together and whether that's problems at home problem you you spend so much time kind of away on trips and uh, you know they are your you're close you're very close with these people and I, I i know for a fact that if it would have happened kind of whilst i was playing there, there, there was a there's a group of us that would have always encouraged the person to be v to be brave and that would be back you know we would back them you know and we would help them you know and, and i know that th that that would come from the clubs also you know i don't think i don't look at this as a situation where the club's going to be affected by it in any way, shape or form. If anything, if anything, in a weird way, I see the first person that actually takes that brave step to lucratively, uh, to, to be, you know, to, to clean up basically in terms of the deals that will come their way, whether it be television, this, that and the other, books, films, you can, you name it because of how big a moment it will actually be. So, you know, I, you know, I do hope, you know, that there will be a day that, you know, we will see, you know, a gay footballer playing in the Premier League because, you know, I do, like I said, I believe that the players have been ready, you know, to, you know, to accept it or to, to, you know, to have one with <laughs> have a gay player within their dressing room for a number of years. It's not an issue. It, it really isn't. This, this sort of moves us on to your documentary about um, knife crime. Yeah. That was obviously a personal uh, issue that, that, made you turned into television and this again i'm seeing this as a set of you know amongst sort of alan shearer's dementia documentary for example and there, there are there are several others it seems to be a sort of area that that is interesting and takes you out of football mm. punditry and into yeah. another space do you want to do more of that definitely yeah definitely i'm in talks at the minute to do you know to to start filming more um, i want to kind of follow that knife crime documentary up and whether it's another knife crime doc or whether it's about guns, I don't know, moped wars, whatever it is, there'll be, you know, I want it to be a hard-hitting kind of social issue that, um, because, you know, I was, I was passionate about the one, the knife crime doc that I actually filmed and it's weird really because, you know, this conversation that we're having is, you know, a lot of it's kind of drifted into branding, some of it's drifted into the perception of footballers and, you know, I suppose when I stopped playing, one of the, I, I was surprised at what people actually thought I was <laughs> as a person. I really was. And because when you go onto the pitch, you're, you, you're an actor at times. You do whatever you need to do to protect yourself. You know, I've met players off the pitch and I'm like, who are you? 
You're the ang- you're the angriest man I've ever seen in my life on the pitch. What? Who are you? You're the nicest guy ever. And they they just literally step over that white line and they flick the switch and they go, "This is who I am for the next ninety minutes. Don't with me." <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. I've got to survive this game. And I was always surprised by what people thought I, you know, who I was. They don't, they actually didn't have a very good opinion of who I was. And I think people were very surprised, um, kind of when I first made my debut on Match of the Day. Or um, when I <laughs> took the step to go on question time, yeah. um, whatever it may be, I think people now kind of over the years have gone. Actually, you know, I, I'm getting to know Jermaine now, and that's that, you know, and that is who he is. And I'm in that position now where I can do that because I'm not playing football. And this, I suppose, this was another one of those moments. This was another moment where, yes, I was very passionate about it. But I also wanted to to let people know that I can lead something, that I can I can own this this piece that was created, and also deliver it in the right way. And yeah, it shocked me a lot, kind of during during the whole process, the kind of the, the ups, the downs, the emotions you go through filming something like that. You know, speaking to parents that have lost their sons, buried their sons, and so on. Speaking to fifteen year olds that take knives to schools that I've got knives on them whilst I'm talking to them. It, I, you know, I was everywhere throughout the whole process. I really was. Um, but I suppose that kind of little element of switching off from talking about football constantly, just I think it has helped me through the year, if anything, and gave me a realisation that I definitely wanted to do more of it because uh, I suppose of how passionate um, I felt about it. But I'm just waiting for the right thing now. It's interesting. So, I mean, your friend and colleague Gary Lineker has sort of led the way a little bit. We've talked mm. about branding and we've talked about document, you know, in terms of, of broadening himself yeah. away from football. Um, what's he like behind the scenes? He seems like a right nasty piece of work. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I can't. Um, he's been so helpful to me, Gary. He really has. Um, I'll never forget kind of my very first match of the day where I was, oh, I was so nervous. I actually went in the day before just to kind of get a feeling of how it happened. So I sat there kind of on the Saturday, watched Alan, I think he was with Danny Murphy, and I was doing the Sunday at first. But So I got that was my match of the day too, debut. When I very first did match of the day, and after we kind of finished the show, he even gave me a little one of his lines kind of to finish the show was good debut. I just was like, oh, thank God, you know what I mean? Because it was, um, Gary has basically been my Des Lynham. Yeah. essentially you know he's been the mainstay on match of the day throughout my whole footballing career uh, and when you kind of see Gary in that seat and you hear that music for a footballer the feelings you get in your body are you know it, it, it's that it's the holy grail for us I suppose just being on that show it really is and um, so the advice that kind of Gary had given me you know kind of f- from walking through the door whether it be grammar how to word things better picking me up on certain mistakes I was making and um, yeah calling me out on them to make me kind of uh, yeah to to make me better really and then also watching him and learning and, and seeing kind of how he how he handles being in front of the camera was something that I, I, I straight away said to myself that's what I want to do because it was I, that's where I see longevity in working in television whether it be for sports or entertainment or factual stuff. Can I come back to um, sort of brand purpose? Yeah. I'm very interested in, I write a lot about brands and how they get organisations, how they get a sense of social purpose. In fact, I've written a book on, on brand purpose. If you're a, a celebrity, a, you know, a, an accomplished footballer, 
you sounds like you you're discovering what your purpose is through your knife crime work and your your documentaries. What what do you think that purpose is? How do you, how do you feel about that? What just with the documentaries, or or do you mean purpose in life? Well, do you, yeah. Do you feel you're discovering a another side to your life? I mean, in, in that sense, what is that purpose? Yeah, I mean. When you're a footballer, everything is so sheltered. And, you know, when I was a kid, it's all I ever wanted to do. And, you know, the minute I was told I can't play anymore, it was doom and gloom and it was like panic. You know, what do you do now? I mean, obviously you don't know anything apart from football. Now, I knew that I was intelligent enough to deal with certain situations, articulate enough to handle certain scenarios. And I was asked a few times to kind of get put, uh, to to go and do some punditry work. And I thought, you know what, I'll I'll, I'll give it a go. It's weird when I talk to people now, you know, and they, they, one of the first things they kind of say to me is, "You found your calling in life." You know, this is you, this is what um, you know. You had a good career, but you, you seem very good at things, uh, at being in front of the camera, handling questions, dealing with uh, the media, and kind of where do you see it going, type thing. And I suppose you know, to answer your question a little bit, I, I, I don't exactly know. All I know is it feels right. It feels I feel like I'm on a good path, on the right path. I feel like. It's quite exciting, and and all I can do, I suppose, is dip my toe into enough things, which I did as a player. It's essentially like being on the pitch, playing right wing, playing left wing, playing centre half, playing centre midfield, gaining an, an understanding of the whole picture, and then seeing where you really want to be. And that's a little bit what I'm doing now, which is why I've done the factual stuff. I want to dip my toe into the entertainment world to see if I like that. The sport side of things, I um, you know, I've, I've got a good few years under my belt now. And the presenting side of things with my radio show that I've been doing now for two years, which is the training ground to try and be a presenter, um, which is advice that I'd give to anybody because it's where you can make all your mistakes, obviously, and get away with it. Um, just yeah, just little things like your links, just the timing of things, just all of that. I just I, I didn't see it, um, but I do enjoy the challenge of it. And yeah, it's it's weird to all of a sudden kind of have a, a completely new career, but it's something that yeah, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to. You mentioned entertainment. What what sort of entertainment might you get involved in? Um, well, look, Saturday night television is obviously where it's at, and if I can, you know, be become Dan- dancing, dancing or the jungle. No, I mean I want I mean leading something <laughs> rather than rather than kind of the challenging side of things. I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, those I, I watch. I watch the jungle quite a bit every now and again. The Strictly Come Dancing pops onto Match of the Day and Shearer loves it, Lineker hates it. So they have a little <laughs> battle about who's going to keep it on. Um, because, weird enough, when you talk about those shows, it's funny and people always throw them at me going, oh, when are you going to be yeah. on there? It's a matter of time or whatever. I've got this thing in my mind where I don't know whether I, I want to go back into management yet. You know, because of yeah. you know, the kind of, the analysis side of myself, how much I do enjoy kind of, um, you know, really delving into the tactics of a football match. Every now and again, when I interview managers, I get this thing, this kind of buzz to say, get back out there and, you know, start doing your training to become a manager. I'm 34 years old and I should still be playing, basically. And I, you know, I, I don't want to kind of make a little mistake now, I suppose, which I might regret in three years time, i.e., Dancing around on strictly <laughs> in a sequin, yeah. in a that's sequin the, that's top. The Gary Neville route. <laughs> You're looking at the Gary Neville route, then, are you back into? Not, not a hundred percent. This is the thing. I, I, all I know is that kind of that particular road right now, and I'm saying immediately. I reckon I'll probably know within the next two years what I'm, you know, whether I will want to go into management or not. Two or three years. Um, you know, Gary, I suppose, got a bit of a 
a harsh lesson in in terms of going into management but what i would say is it was brave it was it was mm. seriously brave and i mean i highly respect him for it because not only did he go into management he did it in a, in a completely different country uh where you have to he had no real understanding of the language which was unbelievable but um of course the uh the alternative career for the class of 95 was uh, was mr beckham wasn't it who who didn't go into management but had a a very clear idea of where his career was going to Brand Beckham, take him. Yeah, yeah. Brand Beckham was created early on in his career, and I suppose where he is now um, is exactly where he wanted to be, or exactly what was what was meant to be, really. When it comes to Brand Beckham, I got a real kind of experience of of my time uh, with David Beckham in England. You know, throughout his old England, most well, a chunk of his England career, I was in the squads, and it was literally. I mean, I I, I didn't see. Beatles, but <laughs> I'm guessing it w- that's what it, it was. It was something very similar to that. I mean, you'd be trying to sleep at night, and all you could hear was Beckham, Beckham, and you look out your window, there'd be thousands of people just just waiting for him to just come out of the of the hotel or wave from his window. It was it was, it was unbelievable. So yeah, I mean, look, there isn't anything that Bex can't promote, and I suppose that the beauty of that is the management side. I suppose of taking care of a, a huge chunk of. Uh, of situations with David. David Fuller, yeah. Yeah, and the other side to it is Bex is, is exactly who he is. And, you know, he, he was an unbelievable footballer, top professional. And, um, yeah, I suppose the way he looks don't, don't, don't hurt things either, does it? <laughs> well, no, just to finish off, it's interesting. So your, um, with your management uh, company's uh, M&C Saatchi Merlin. Correct, yes. What, what did they, and that's Richard Thompson. Yeah, yeah. Um, also chair of uh, Surrey. He likes the chairmanship, doesn't he, Richard? He does, yeah. Um, <laughs> what, what, did, what, what does that bring? What does, what does a management company, what do you look for in a, in a hmm. management company in that sense? Well, actually, when I, when I speak to like, players that are coming towards the end of their careers now, it's one of the biggest things I tell them to do because players get obsessed with their football agents and it's like, well, I can't leave him, I can't leave him. He's been with me my whole life. And I'm like, well, what can he actually do for you in the TV world? I mean, don't get me wrong. Yes, he might be able to pick up the phone to certain channels and say oh can you put my player on the show but his bread and butter is getting players to football clubs and that's what he'll continually focus on doing so for me personally when I finished playing I I just started picking up the phones I was I rang I must have been four or five companies um a lot of them said we're not taken anymore not interested and um got a lot of no's came across obviously Richard Thompson and MC Sarchi Merlin and uh they were like come in you know excited sat down with Tomo and, and Katie there and yeah, I suppose just the, the the buzz was good. It was it, the fit was right as well, and they brought a level of um, tangible things to what I had in my mind. Um, so I had a vision of where I wanted to be and how I saw myself, and I still have this kind of thing now where I'm like, I know who I am, and I'm trying to create this image to be. Um, you know, for people to see, which is why I do the knife kind documentaries and go on question time and so on and so forth. Um, but it, they had the ability to turn it into something, um, to make it real, and that's exactly what they are doing. And you know, they, you know, the planning that still goes on, kind of today. I was in meetings all of yesterday with them, kind of plotting out next year and kind of where you want to be the year after and so on and so forth. So that's what my management company kind of bring to the table for me specifically. But I push them quite hard. I'm not really a person that will kind of just sit there and go, oh, yeah, well, when, when the phone rings, I'll turn up and do something. You know, I, I, like I said, I know exactly who I want to be and how I want to be perceived and where I want to be in so many years. And I expect them to deliver on that, really. So, yeah, and if they don't, 
I'd probably say it's my fault. Well, it's working well so far. Um, thanks very much for your time. No, Jermaine, you for really enjoyed that. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Thank really you. Really appreciate it. A busy man. <laughs> this has been The Line, the PR Week podcast in association with Cake. Lee Sanders has been on the recording deck. Thanks, Lee. Until the next time, cheers. The Line is sponsored by Cake, the Havas Sport and Entertainment Agency.